0: Having to do with uh, mental health, and uh, it's quite a, a subject in the context that most churches don't talk much about it, uh, and it can be very controversial. And so, what I'll share with you is is the the understanding that I have in reference to mental health and the use of public services as well as uh, Christian services, and so. Uh, as we look, I, I, we're going to be going to Philippians chapter 4, but it's going to take me a few minutes to get there in the way of introduction. Uh, first, uh, just the idea, the reason why it's not talked about much is that within the framework of, of, of the church, there is a stigma attached to mental health. In fact, there's a stigma in our culture attached to mental health. And the irony of that is the number of us who have gone through different points of, of situations in our lives where we've needed to, needed to, to possibly be ministered to and have stayed, stayed away from it because of that stigma. So what better place than the church to deal with this and to remove that stigma? And and so that's what I hopefully we can do here this morning. Uh Again we're starting with uh looking at Genesis 126. God created man in his image in his image he created them male and female he created them. And within the framework of that that tells us that we are created in the image of God and and we I I put it down here in, in my notes that in the beginning uh, there was there was no issue in reference to mental health you know there was uh because everything was perfect, and at the end there will be no issue with mental health, uh, because in, in heaven there won't, it, everything will be perfect. But in between, we have the situation as to what happened, and that's the fall of man, the entering of sin. And so as a result, we have issues uh, that have to do with how we respond to various things. And mental health has, is a broad category. Um, it it's we want to be careful because sometimes it becomes a catch-all for anything that, that seems slightly unusual. But the way we'll look at it this morning, well, I'll get into it as we go along. Uh, the first thing I want to note is that man is three-dimensional. And what I mean by that is, uh, well, the best thing to do would be to look at a scripture. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our whole spirit, our whole soul, our whole body. There's three parts in that sense that that make us up. And what happens in one area affects the others. And and so we'll establish that as to spirit, soul, and body. Only God's Word is capable... Of, of dealing with uh, this issue in the sense of, of the fullness of it. And let me share a scripture with you uh, found in, in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God that we may receive mercy, find grace, help. No, that's not the verse I was looking for. Verse 12. There we go. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. So there we see the, the, the idea of, of the, the Word of God ministering to us in all three categories of who we are. Spirit, soul, and body. And, uh, and so we, we want to establish this, this picture that man is unique in all of creation. Not only are we unique in the sense of the fact that we have the ability to reason, to think, and to, to make that uh, relationship with God in the sense of, of thinking of Him and who He is and, and our relationships with each other, which is way beyond any kind of, of animal relationship. Um, I, I share it this way. Uh, a dog doesn't sit there and, and and contemplate, oh, I'm a dog. Now... It, I don't even know if they know that they're a dog in the context of putting it into the reasoning. But we have the ability to, to think, oh, I am a human being. I have the ability to have relationships in and around my own uh, you know, species, if you will, with the, the, the humans. But I can have relationships with the rest of God's creation as well. And so we look at God's creation and we can, we can look at it and say, oh, this ties together with this and that ties together with this. Look what God has done in an awesome way of creating things. We can read His Word and look at creation and understand, begin to understand who He is and see how He has placed us in His creation. So all of this is to say we are a unique thing within the the framework of God's creation. So, like I said in the beginning, mental health was not an issue and, and at the end of time it will not be an issue, but for the moment it is. And what we deal with Uh, is in the beginning and at the end, we will have complete uh, contentment, completely content. We'll have inner peace and we'll have security. Those are the three things that we look at that we're going to look at today in reference to to mental health. Complete contentment, inner peace, and security. Those are the things that we all want. I would assume that you're no different than I am in that, of of wanting to have a, a happy life complete, full, and to have a sense of peace about things going on in, in the world around me and a sense of security, that I'm safe, that my family is safe, that we are, everything is okay. And, and, and this is what we desire. We look around the world today and, and, and even setting aside the thoughts of mental uh, health issues, we see that these things are, are, are not universal as far as everywhere we go. This doesn't happen. Uh, we look at different countries and we see that uh, they don't have security or that, that their sense of inner peace because there's persecution or uh, the complete contentment because they are unable to uh, have the things that they need to even survive. And so as we look at this, we realize that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has sin. Now, separating that out and then looking at mental illness as a part of this fallen world, it is a major problem in the world today. Certainly, uh, there's different aspects of it. I'm only going to deal with four generalities. And that is anxiety, which is the idea of worry. Uh, and you think about it. When you worry, what what does it gain to, to worry? What does Jesus say about it in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount? What does he say? It, you can't add a what? You can't add a moment to your life by worrying about it. And, in fact, uh, some people say that, that worry enough, you can actually take moments away possibly from your life. Uh, I look at it and say, I, I'm confident in God's sovereignty that, that, that and it says that before the foundation of the world He knew the numbers of my days. So I, I look at it and say worrying about it one way or the other isn't going to change anything. So that's what Jesus is pointing out. But we get anxious. We worry about things. We worry about so many different things. Uh, depression uh, is probably the number one area of mental illness in the sense of of, of across the, the, especially the Western Hemisphere, uh, the, Western, in the United States and, and Europe. Uh, there's bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Now, I am not a person who understands all of these things. Uh, so I, I looked up a couple. I, I didn't think I was going to have to look up anxiety or worry or depression. But bipolar disorder, there's some confusion about what is involved and what happens there. Uh, It's also known as manic depression. It's a mental illness that brings severe high and low moods and changes in sleep, energy, thinking, and behavior. So it affects all aspects of, of, of life. People who have bipolar disorder can have periods in which they feel overly happy and energized and other periods of feeling very sad, hopeless, and sluggish. In between those periods, they usually feel normal. You can think of the highs and the lows as two poles ...of mood, which is why it's called bipolar and and a bipolar disorder. So there's that picture of what bipolar is. Schizophrenia, as an overview, is a serious brain disorder that distorts the way a person thinks, acts, expresses emotions, perceives reality, and relates to others. People with schizophrenia, the most chronic and disabling of the major mental illnesses, often have problems functioning in society, at work, at school, and in relationships schizophrenia can leave its sufferer frightened and withdrawn it is a lifelong disease that cannot be cured but can be controlled with proper treatment now when it says it cannot be cured, that's coming from the web md and and medical profession looking at it yeah and and so it's it's Uh, it's a difficult thing to to deal with and it's probably the most uh, dehabilitating part of of the ones that I'm talking about so far. And I put here, contrary to popular belief, schizophrenia is not a split or multiple personality. That's what a lot of people think it, it is. Schizophrenia is a psychosis, a type of mental illness in which a person cannot tell what is real from what is imagined. At times... People with psychotic disorders lose touch with reality. The world may seem like a jumble of confusion, thoughts, images, and sounds. The behavior of people with schizophrenia may be very strange and even shocking. A sudden change in personality and behavior which occurs when schizophrenia sufferers lose touch with reality. is called a psychotic episode. Now, the reason why I'm sharing those with you is just to make sure we're all on the same page, in a sense, as we look at this. Uh, Those are the, the, the major... Areas of of mental illness that uh, is dealt with in our culture and and through our medical facilities and and, and medicine in the United States. And within that, there's a lot of other breaking up of those categories into into different areas. So with that in mind, the thing that seems to be a common denominator to all of these is, is is to uh is fear uh, uh, some form of fear it's a core component to all four of these anxiety depression bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and we're told in scripture first john chapter 4 in fact let's uh, i'm going to look at that first john chapter 4 um Verses 13 through 18. I write these things to you that uh, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, I'm uh, looking at it and saying that just doesn't sound right. Wrong reference, and I can't. I don't have another one to take its place. Uh, perfect love casts out fear, I, I, and I, I can't remember where that is located. Maybe one of you will look that up. Oh, there we go. Uh, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, verse 13, because He has given us of His Spirit, and we have been seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son. And it goes down to verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. So the idea, would we say, would be that perfect love casts out fear. What is the source of perfect love? God, okay, through Jesus Christ. And so, somehow in the midst of this, we as a church and on our faith, has something to do with the idea of how we look at mental illness and how we relate to it within the framework of the church. How do we obtain perfect love? Well, first off, understanding the only source of that is God. And it requires salvation through Jesus Christ. But when we get involved with the idea of perfect love, do we have it complete? when we start in our walk with Christ? No, it's something we work out in our walk. We grow stronger in our love relationship with the Lord. So and and so as a result, we we have his his love is perfect in every way as it's given to us, but as we relate to it, we are relating to it still in our fallen flesh in an imperfect way. And so it's it's a, a growing process to deal with the perfect love of God. In Matthew chapter uh, 11, in this idea of of coming to Christ, uh, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 of Matthew. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, Jesus says, that is to trust in me. He says, I will give you rest. And the idea of the word rest here encompasses also the idea of peace. And when we have peace, what the first area of peace that we have and experience as Christians as believers is to be at peace with God in the sense of judgment. Judgment no longer is is over us. We uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so as a result, we are at peace with God. But peace is also another area that we grow in in the understanding of we don't get more at peace with God, but we get more in the context of rest and applying that to our life on a day-to-day basis. Uh, in John chapter 14, verse 27, uh, G, uh, Jesus refers to this as well in his teachings. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. There again, the idea of fear. Do not be afraid. The peace of God is to level things with us, between us and God, in a sense that we are no longer afraid. Afraid of what? To approach the throne of God. Why? Because we are at peace with God. Before we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, there was a sense of, of not being able to do that. But now through Christ, as our Savior, we can. We are at peace. We can come to the Lord. We can come to God. Uh, Jesus says, I will give you rest. I will give you peace. He also says, take my yoke. What that means is basically to become a disciple. To become under under my direction. Uh, somebody driving a team of, 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 of animals that require a yoke uh, would be the ones in charge. Jesus is saying, so... Take my yoke, become a disciple, a follower of mine. And he says it's easy. Literally, the word means well-fitting; it fits perfectly. And I was thinking of this as, as I was looking at this and thinking just with the just among the disciples as he's teaching them through this. Each one of them is a different-sized person, you know. And and I, it was meant for this to, to to come to this point. Jesus customizes. His relationship with every person he draws in. We're not all at the same place. We're not all at the same point. We all don't all have the same needs, and so Jesus literally customizes our relationship with us as far as how he deals with us and what he might deal with with me first in the things that need to be worked out in my life as far as being um, working out my salvation, as Paul puts it, or be the sanctification process. I might be, need to do something. Before you know that, that you could do uh, later, God would, maybe you have to do something first before God can get the other things in line to go. So what I'm saying is we all come in at different points at different places, and we all have different needs, and that's the picture of His yoke is easy, it's well fitting, it's perfect for each disciple follower that Jesus calls. And then He says, "My burden is light." And uh, what that is to reference is, is the reality that the legalism of the Pharisees was a burden that was so heavy that nobody could could get to the Lord. Nobody could manage. They completely messed up the whole thing to a point where it was all legalism. And, and as a result, the burdens were heavy. Here, we have Jesus says, my burden is light. In Christ, the burden is carried by Christ. He has removed it. He's taken care of it. The burden is light. You know, uh, We come and there's not a whole list of, of things. We come in Christ who has completed and kept the law for us. As a result, we, we can approach the throne of God right now. Once we have Christ and, and we're in a relationship with Him, we are free to approach the throne of God. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the source of our strength, and he is the source of our direction. He is the way, the truth, and the life for us. So with all of that, I I just wanted to get that as a kind of a foundation of looking at things. Turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think about these things what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me paul writing practice these things and the god of peace will be with you all of this is the idea of being at peace this idea of wanting to have that that again that feeling of of, of being safe, being secure, uh, being covered, and, 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 again, that idea of peace. When we have mental illness, we don't have that. And depression, I think, is, again, probably one of the, the biggest ones. We'll look at it a little bit closer than the rest. Uh, so Paul starts out here, rejoice in the Lord. Why should, why should we rejoice? What's the number one thing that you would rejoice for? Salvation. We've been saved. We're a small group. We can interact today. <laughs> you know, uh, we've, we've, we've got this grace that has been poured over us. And scripture says it's been lavished on us. It means more than enough, more than necessary to accomplish the purpose. It's an amazing thing. Jesus has poured out over us more than is necessary in order to bring us before the throne of His Father in peace. And so, rejoice in the Lord. The, the, many of the confessions, Westminster and others, uh, Westminster and others say, uh, man's chief end is to glorify the Lord and enjoy Him forever. We've been saved. We would be redeemed. We've been brought to peace with God, that we might glorify the Lord and enjoy Him forever. In verse five, He says, "The Lord is at hand." That means He's with us. He's with us here now. He's with us when we leave. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit everywhere we go. God is with us as believers. When we gather together, it says the Lord is in our midst. But it doesn't matter if we're by ourselves, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have the Lord with us. The Lord is always near. Always near. And then he says in verse 6 Don't be anxious, don't worry. And this literally means also to be pulled in different directions. When you're anxious, when you worry, the idea is that you, you can't figure out what to do. You're pulled in various directions, and and so this idea of being anxious is to be pulled in different directions. As Christians, our 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 faith and our and, and our response to what God is doing to us is to pull us where towards Him. But when we get anxious, when we start to worry and we start to, to consider those things and it begins to take over the way we think, we don't get pulled towards Him. We get pulled in every which way and off, most often not towards Him. So if I look at this and, I, and it says very clearly, you know, uh, you know not to, to, to be anxious uh how do i how do I go about that? How do I do this in a fallen world? Well, I do it through prayer he's talking about it here through supplication supplication an interesting word supplication is spiritual earnestness <laughs> i thought okay that that's great What does that mean <laughs> spiritual earnestness uh and and what I, I came up with as I started looking at this in different references, I realized the best example I could think of was Luke chapter 18. We don't need to go there because there's probably once you, once I start to talk about it you'll be familiar with it, where two people go to offer their their offerings before at the temple. A tax collector and a Pharisee. The Pharisee brings his tax his his gift and and he does it with pomp and circumstances and loudly. And he's, you know, thank, I'm, thank you, Lord, for not making me like that person over there. And, 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 and he, he just glorifies himself more than anything else. And the tax collector is over there pleading with God for grace and forgiveness. And the picture was which one walks away with, with a result of their, their prayer? It's the tax collector. The idea is that to be earnest is to not serve God with lip service. I put that in my own vernacular to, to, to understand it. We don't just do it because, oh, well, this is the day I go to prayer and do this and do that. Or I get up on my morning and I do my devotion and get it done. But I, I, I don't think about it. I, I just do it as, as a form of rote service. And, and that's less lip service. It's not really coming from the heart. So our this idea of, of, of spiritual earnestness, supplication is deep from within. It comes out of what we need before the throne of God. What we need from God to be able to walk closer to God. So through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, basic part of prayer is gratitude. And it doesn't matter who we are, where we are, what we have or don't have, we still come with an attitude of gratitude. Why? Because God has given us another breath. We didn't deserve that. The moment we sinned, we deserved death. But through God's grace, He gave us another breath. And so that's something that applies to everyone, saved or unsaved. They are walking in God's grace. Come to God with prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. And again, this idea that God is there. uh, You know, he, and 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 to he's made to make things known to god he is there he will answer our prayers verse 7 says the peace of god will guard your heart and your mind this comes to again this idea of not being anxious the peace of god is guarding our heart and our mind this word god is an awesome word you know i, I normally think of of, of of a guard as as, as a soldier sitting there like this, you know, you know, with his, his rifle and, 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 and attention and, and, and guard. But it's so much bigger than that. He's there to protect. But it says to prevent hostile invasion. God guards our heart, meaning to prevent hostile invasion. Who wants to invade our heart in hostility? Satan. That's just, it, it's how I, I keep thinking of uh, when I, I was going through this verse of the, the, the book uh, by C.S. Lewis, the Scrutate Letters, and, and the, 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 the things, the instructions that the demon that was seeking after this one person was uh, getting his instructions to invade here, to go here, to trip him up this way, to do this, to do that. The goal was to get into his mind, into his heart, and trip him up. And I'm realizing that that's what spiritual warfare is about. Ephesians talks about spiritual warfare. And it's not something that's between man and, and woman, man and man, people on earth this way. It's it's between us and the powers of darkness. The peace of God will guard, would prevent hostile invasion. And also another part of this is to keep in custody. In other words... He's taken charge. He's taking custody. The uh, I, I, only thing that I could think of that, that I could relate to was being in, from a divorced family and who got custody of me as a, as, a, as a child growing up. The one that was responsible for care and upbringing and protecting. And, and so that's this idea of keeping custody. Verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What are the things that, that, that we are to be putting into the way we think? And he says, focus on these things truth. What is honorable? How do we determine what's honorable? What gives us uh, the indications of what is honorable? The word of God versus. Okay. so what is honorable? In other words, we're not to dwell on things that are dishonorable, but on the things that are honorable, things that are just rather than unjust, things that are pure rather than impure, things that are lovely rather than than unlovely, (laughs) Uh, commendable. Things that are are worthy of of attention, commendable. Worthy of praise, things that are worthy of praise. Look at all of these things and you realize he's talking about all of these in a positive way. He says these are the things that we as Christians are to be thinking about. And it drew me in my thinking to Psalm chapter 1, the very first psalm. psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. Look carefully at this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Where does he get his counsel? From the things of God. He gets it from the Word of God. From godly people. He doesn't turn to the world to get his ideas of what is right and what is wrong. And this is a progressive thing, and it was meant to be. If you walk, if you do walk in the counsel of the wicked, you're going to end up standing in the way of sinners. What that means is as you take the counsel of the, of, of the world rather than the counsel of God, uh, you start to stand and, 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 and be around the people of the world more than the people of God. And you get more input that way from the world. And as you stand in the way of sinners, you end up sitting in the seat of scoffers. In other words, those who mock God. It's a progressive thing. You can actually, even as a Christian, as a believer get your counsel from the world as to how to walk, what is right, what is wrong, and end up uh, you know, walking in the path of, of, of other people who are thinking like the world rather than like, the, like God, and as a result end up even being associated with him in such a way that people say, oh, he's with a group that what? Mocks God. How important is it, to go back to the, to the first part of this then, Who walks not in the counsel. Where do we get our counsel as believers? From His Word. From other believers. From mature believers. And then what does He do with this counsel that He gets? His delight is in the law of the Lord. What is the law of the Lord? It's His Word. It's Scripture. And on this law He meditates day and night. It's His main source of of reflection of, of as he looks at the world he he compares it and and the, the 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 things of the world and the things that the world are doing he takes it to the word of god and he compares it and sees how it measures up and even to the point where he'll dwell on it through the night to think about how things are working with reference to the word of god versus the 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 path of the way the world goes without god we're called if this is accurate then we're called to be discerning people as to we look at the world and we say, oh, that is not a, a good thing to participate in or that is not a good thing to do or that is not a, a, a particularly good uh, way to get my advice or, or, or the, 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 the counsel that I need. And so we look the, the way of the biblical people, to the way of, of believers to get our counsel. To, to, and so we walk with a council of believers. We stand in the way of believers and we sit with the believers. People will say, well, that's an isolationist point of view. You can't help but get associated with the, with the framework of the world around us at some point in time. But the idea is that when we have the opportunity and especially when we're looking to get direction as to how to walk and to live our lives, where are we going to look for that? Go to the bookstore, and of course, we don't have any of the big ones right now uh, in, in this area, but it used to be like you'd go into to the, what was the big one up in Eureka? Borders, yeah. And you go into borders, and, and if you walk through the main doors and, and then went off to the section to the left. This whole section to the left, about the size of half this room, was self-help, and all of them had different ideas of how to to go. And you go through and say, "Where am I in my struggle with life?" And I will look at this or I look at that, and I look for something that seems to I, I, that I can identify with to get direction from. That's what the world is doing. We see it on television, we see it in in, in, in advertising. People with the idea of uh, just listen to me. I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> you know, and, and but the word of God is where we're supposed to be going to godly men and women is where we are supposed to be going to godly work of, of, of God. People who are are getting their direction from God, from the word. What is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, worthy of praise. The only thing way something could be worthy of praise. Is if it is of God. And then Paul starts in verse nine with the idea of to put into action what you have gleaned. In this case, from Paul, he says, "You know, you've learned stuff from me. You received learning from me. You've heard from me. You've seen how I live my life." And there's a a, an an implied thought here that you need to be aware of. Paul is saying, "In as much as I." Walk in the Lord, copy me. That's implied if you put it together with all he's written, you'll see that, that that's a legitimate way to look at that. As much as I walk like the, 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 the way the Lord has told us, copy me. What you've learned from me, what you've received from me, what you've heard from me, what you've seen, put it into action. It's not something that is just passive, just to learn it and have head knowledge, but to put it into action. And I I put in here how Paul walks when it relates to true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, worthy of praise. As Paul acts in those things and shows us how to live. Okay, again, we're looking for people in our lives. Christians are looking for, brand new Christians are looking for a Christian who is more mature than they are. They're looking for a Bible study teacher. They're looking for uh, someone to, to come along and disciple them, this type of thing. In order to, what? Grow in the Lord. We're not to be passive. I have to say, sadly, that very often, I uh, and I can recall uh, Kathy and I running into this uh, after we had become uh, started going to a particular church uh, in Southern California. It was the first church we were going to. And we were really excited as were a few other young people that were, had just recently come to the Lord and they were excited. Our lives were changing. And we were looking to people to, to, to change. We were very fortunate. We had a few that were really good teachers and, and 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 blessed us greatly. But we also had people that were saying, you know, put their arm on you and say, "You'll as you, as you get a little along with us, you'll calm down. You'll, you know, you'll get stable. You'll, you won't be so zealous, you know. And and, and I thought, what what a tragedy. You would think if everything we know about the Lord is true, the more we learn about Him, the more we know about Him, the more what we would get? Zealous. But instead, what the norm is, is to calm down. To become passive. Our walk with the Lord, this is what Paul is trying to say, is an action thing, it's not passive. What you've seen in me, do it. And then we're told in other places to pass it on. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Once you know what you know, there's someone who doesn't know as much as you know. Share what you know with them. The guy who shared the Lord with me before I became a Christian, it's very interesting because he didn't he doesn't—he didn't have a great reputation of being a great Bible teacher or or anything like that. I never saw the guy again, but a couple of people told me that he actually had a problem with, with, with alcohol, of all the people to, to, to learn something of the Lord from. But what this guy shared with me was more than I knew. And it was the first time I had said, had anybody share with me their personal opinion about what God was doing in their life. And even though he was struggling, he was sharing that he had sense and, and times and moments of victory. That was the first time I had heard that kind of a testimony. When he challenged me to read the Gospel of John, not because it's the love of gospel. Back in the seventies, that's what it, you know was the big thing, but it was because the way John wrote, he, God had put it in his heart. He says, "And see if you don't believe that John believed what he was writing." He said, "I'm not asking you to believe it. Just see if you can see how John believed it." Because that was my thing. I thought the guys that wrote the, the scriptures were just writing like, you know, stories of folklore. Went, sat down at my shop and read the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of Luke. Read the Gospel of Mark. Read the Gospel of Matthew. And I said, these guys seem to believe what they're writing. I don't know why they believe it. How can they possibly believe? And of course, I was reading it literally without anybody teaching me. How can they possibly believe a bodily, physical resurrection out of the grave? And that started it. Because this one man, not a teacher in his church, he's not a pastor, he wasn't an evangelist. He just happened to be sitting at an empty table at lunch and it was the only empty table in the rest, in the in, in the in the room with an extra seat in it. Do you mind if I sit? Well, there's actually three of us. There was a, a table for four, and he was the one up. And and two hours later, over cold food, we were still talking. We are to go with what we have and be prepared to share it. And the God of peace, verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. You won't be doing this alone. The God of peace will be with you. Now, I already talked about this a little bit. Perfect love is what God has. It casts out fear. Christ's love casts out fear. A little bit at a time. I'm the, uh, apparently this was one of the first times this guy had ever witnessed his testimony to somebody else. Why? Because you get nervous about doing things like that. Especially in a restaurant and it was for somebody you don't even know. But he was bold. And he acted out of the love of Christ and wanting me to know the love of Christ. So I looked at this and I said, okay, perfect love casts out fear. What do I do then here to get you know to this point where I can look on the things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, worthy of praise, uh, follow after people who are ahead of me that are walking with the Lord and, and, and walk the way they are walking and seek their advice and seek their counsel. How do I, I go about this? Well, part of it is what we're doing this morning. We do it in Bible study. We do it in our in our groups that we meet with in homes. We do it in 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 meeting one on one with each other. Sometimes we do it just by our lifestyle as we walk with the Lord, and other people get to and and see. Oh, that's I think this is, and we get to that point where we think, Oh, this is what George would do. I think. Somebody say, Well, isn't it what Jesus would do? Well, yeah, but George is following after Jesus and I I've been able to see George do this. I think this is the way Jesus would do it, so I'm going to I'm going to follow after him and and try to pattern this next part of my walk or my thing that I do that way. But what we need to I do is to identify our fears and then come to Christ. And it goes back to what he said, you know, come to me put on my yoke take my direction where does that come from his word and follow after me and when i idea my fears and bring them before the lord the idea is to say okay lord i don't want these fears anymore how do i get rid of them But what if I'm struggling with some fears that have got a hold of me and have maybe had a hold of me all my life? Maybe some things that go back before I was even a Christian. Some people will say, well, those fears should be gone now that you're a Christian. I appreciate that thought. But I've got some things that stayed with me before I was a Christian that I had to wrestle with after I was a Christian. Still have things I have to wrestle with. I need to ask the Lord to reveal to me the things that, that are holding me back, the things that, that I have a fear of and to bring them before Him. And ask, Lord, as You start to change the way I think, change me, I put this before You and ask You to remove this from me, to change it, to, get, to help me get past it. But what if it falls into one of these categories of extreme anxiety or extreme depression? And it's been something I've been wrestling with all my life. What do I do? And I'm going to suggest to you, and this isn't a popular suggestion within the framework of the church at large. Uh, there's those people who believe that if you have physical or mental uh, disabilities or illnesses, you should be able to bring it before the Lord, have a group of people pay over, pray over you, and have it gone. There were a group of people who brought me a, a, a bus ticket to a uh, healing uh, convention down at the Arco Arena and, and so that I would have my, my back healed. And I told them that I the particular teacher that they were talking about I didn't agree with and I couldn't go. And they said, well you just don't want to be healed. I guess Paul didn't want to be healed either because he had a particular ailment that stayed with him through his life. In fact, God says His grace was sufficient to take care of it. Interesting. The idea that I'm getting to is is that Christian counseling. There are times where you need more than what just the, the church in itself can provide. You need some, what I call, vocational or professional help. But you get into an area like we are, and you say, well, what if there aren't any Christian counselors? There's a few that that have the name Christian on their shingle, but there's a question mark as to what they're actually teaching and, and using in their way of counseling. And the question comes down to, should a Christian go to counseling with a secular therapist? Is that okay? I'm going to suggest to you that that can be okay. What I would suggest to you is start with your pastor. See how it goes. And then with your pastor in mind, go ahead and seek the secular counseling. But keep your pastor informed as to what's going on. And allow your pastor. In fact, there's a, I've got a thing here that says uh, the questions you should ask of a, of a therapist that you might go to, who's not, and, and find out how they, they, they do certain things. Ask your potential therapist what kind of counseling they plan to use. Then look it up in the following, and, 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 and go to a Christian counseling reference in the on the internet. And there's a lot of them that can tell you these things, and, and find out what it means and how it's done and and what's included in it. Ask yourself and your spiritual advisor, who would be—you could be your pastor, a Christian who's mature that you looked up to, that's been helping you in your walk, this type of thing—whether the theories you have read about are in agreement with your faith, neutral, or in some way antagonistic. In other words, check it out. Don't walk through the door and just sit there and, and you know, figure out what's going on. Again, observe, listen, ask. Tell your therapist early on that you are a Christian and ask them if that will affect their treatment of you. If they react negatively to your faith, find another one. (laughs) Ask your therapist and or doctor who is referring you why they feel uh, that this particular counselor or counseling will work for you. Is there any evidence or a base that they're working from that would say this? Or is it just that they say, oh, well, I've known George for years. We go over and see him. Be forthright. Ask. In, in, involve yourself. Interview, if you will, and, and find out. But then keep your spiritual advisor, the person that you console, consider the, the person you would go to, informed as to what you're finding out. I have interacted over the years where somebody where we, we realize that somebody's got ex, extreme depe, depression they need professional help. there's nobody in the area that's a Christian the closest Christian group to take to is ready and so we go to they go to a local counselor and I, I say ask them and tell them that you want me to be involved in what's going on. And I have found at times I've actually been invited to sit in on the counseling sessions. There is a a number of, of evangelical groups that say, if it's not Christian, you can't go. But like I said, we're stuck in an area where we don't have professional Christian counseling. We had a few for uh, a while, we had a, uh, uh, and, and they didn't get the support of the church. churches in the area. And as a result, they both went two different directions and, and left the area. There's a man who uh, interacts with uh, what's called the Gospel Coalition. And you want information, the Gospel Coalition is a good place to look for resources on, in Scripture. It's uh, made up of evangelical churches and teachers. Uh, that have gotten together to form a group of, of exchange. And uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Kevin DeYoung, which I really respect and uh, listen to. And uh, he he puts it forth. Uh, there are those who say you can't take medication, you can't have physical, you can't have uh, psychological therapy or any of this. He says, first of all, I, I, you know, uh, most responsible biblical counselors would affirm a place for medications in dealing with things like depression. Now, a lot of people say you can't, you shouldn't take medication. But the other side of it is, without the medication, you find it hard to relate to anything or anyone. Because you are in a serious depression or extreme anxiety. You need something to stabilize. Your body chemistry is off. By the way, there isn't a test that you can go in normally and and take a blood test and say, oh, your body chemistry is off. But something's going wrong within the way that your brain is interacting. And you need some help. You need something to balance it out. And so Kevin DeYoung says, uh, well, he quotes this thing, if medication is helping even a little, here is what we would say. That's great. If you feel like a spiritual failure because you are taking medication, we would say, no way. And by the way, that's also what happens. People find out you're on a particular medication and they'll say, oh, Christian shouldn't be on that. It's because we're ignorant. We really don't know what we're talking about. Why do you even think that? Then we would try to reason how Scripture itself is not giving you a reason to feel like a failure. We'd talk to you, we'd encourage you, we'd build you up. The caution biblical counselors would add to what Mr. Welch said is that there is a danger that the medication could be given more power than it actually has. Medication can be helpful for treating psych, uh, physical symptoms in things like depression and anxiety, but medications cannot transform the heart. Did you hear that there? Okay. Medications can get you to a point where you're stable, but they're not going to transform the heart. What transforms the heart? Offering yourself as a living sacrifice to the Lord and having your heart transformed and not being conformed to the things of the world. You see, it's a combination then at that point. You might need the medication or you might need the professional counselor to get even keel enough to be able to pursue an active walk with the Lord and get things squared away. I've seen a number of people get ahead of their depression, get ahead of their anxieties, get ahead of their other uh, symptoms that, uh, that have been holding them back, and actually to the point where they don't need the medications anymore. <laughs> the, the final thoughtment here was, these issues are complex and won't be resolved through blogs, including this one. But the the issues are important and deserve our best thinking, humblest prayer, and most gracious conversations. I believe a nuanced and robust biblical counseling model and methodology best allow Jesus to bring com- comprehensive hope and healing to all the brokenness of sin and suffering. I pray this blog shines a small ray of light in those issues. It was the closing remarks of Kevin DeYoung on that. In other words, he's saying... In concert with your Christian values, your Christian counselor, your, or your pastor, or whatever, pursue this if you need it. If you and your pastor, or your, you and your, your Christian counselor come together with the idea that this might make a difference, give it a try. It's okay. And you're not a failure because you, you, you went that route. There's no way in in the time allowed this morning that I could cover this thing thoroughly. But what I wanted to do, do this morning was simply open the door for you to understand that as Christians, we still live in fallen flesh. We are still susceptible to all the things the fallen flesh are susceptible to. And that includes depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, different things. It doesn't mean that we're not Christians. It doesn't mean that we're less saved. It doesn't mean that we're not spiritual. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us as much or any of that. What it means is we have a physical disorder from the fallen flesh and we need help. And we need as a church to come alongside these people rather than shun them. And I just want to encourage you, if you have a friend that you know is, 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 is having a struggle with their church or something like this, or maybe they're not going to church because they're embarrassed or they're afraid, I hope you can tell them they're welcome here. And understand that it's an interesting thing. You break your leg, you don't hesitate to go to the doctor to get it splinted and fixed and, and, and put together. But we break our emotions or break our feelings and we don't know how to get them fixed, and we, we we say, Oh, but you can't go to this doctor, because that's that's only that, that you know, all you have to do is pray it and it'll be taken care of. I want to suggest to you that we don't want to be dependent on these things in the sense of saying, Oh, just take another pill. There's way too much of that. And we're certainly seeing that in our culture. But the other side of it is the person that really does need it needs our support and not our condemnation. Needs our encouragement and not our shunning. Needs us to come alongside and put our arm around them and say, we're with you. We're alongside you. you What can we do to help? And encourage and lift up and pray for There isn't a one of us in here that doesn't know someone who fits some of the categories that we're talking about this morning. It might even be you. Okay, And the thing is that it doesn't make you any less than. It just means this is what has been attacking you in your walk with the Lord. It's like the person that says, oh, the alcoholic over there who's stumbling and, and can't quite get past that over and over. He gets gets sober and then he gets drunk. He gets sober and gets drunk. Uh, he can't possibly be saved. What about the gossip? that's gossiping about that. They're both on the same list, by the way, in Scripture. Gossips and drunks. So... What do we do instead? We come alongside. We stop pointing our finger at or shunning and we come alongside and we become people who care about the needs of others around us. And we don't make judgment. There are times where we will see that somebody needs to be approached and and talked to where they're saying you're going overboard on something. Yeah, that happens. But the other side of it is give it a moment. Give it a reflection And don't jump to conclusions and don't just take a general principle that some other pastor or some other group or some other Christian denomination takes and run with it. Seek the Lord yourself. Lord, how can I minister to this person? Open my heart to be able to meet their needs and be compassionate and caring that I might have the eyes of Jesus, ears of Jesus, and the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus is nowhere more positively put forth to us than when we share communion. What an awesome picture of His love for us. Before we were ever saved, He did what? He died for us. He first loved us. We didn't deserve any of it. It We didn't come to it and say, Oh, well, because they're beginning to lean this way, now I'll save them. He saved us. And then came after us. And embraced us where we were. And He loves us. What a powerful picture. He, and, and then it says that He lavishes His love on us. He lavishes His grace on us. He lavishes out in the sense of, of, of caring for us. And then I come back to that one word. He guards. Once we come to Him and say, and say Lord, You are my Savior I trust in you. I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that you are the Christ, the Son of God. He guards our heart and starts to build us up and to protect us in such a way that he will take us all the way. And Philippians chapter 1 says, and he will complete the work he started in us. How awesome is that? I'd ask the ushers to come forward, pass the communion out, hold it until we've all been served, and then we'll share it together.